Hi guys, I'm Marie, and today we are bringing you a special episode that was originally released on our Patreon exclusive channel. There has been an update to this case, so we decided to make it public for everybody. You're going to hear how we presented the case last year, and then you'll hear the update at the very end. So let us know what you think. I don't know if you guys have heard about Natalie Holloway. It is a 2005 unsolved case, and we kind of have a theme going on lately. It's also going to probably sound very familiar to you for other reasons. In 2005, Mountain Brook High School's senior class would take a trip from Birmingham, Alabama to Aruba to celebrate their graduation. And this was a long-standing tradition at the school. If you don't know about Aruba, it is part of the Dutch Caribbean. It has warm, sunny weather year-round. And as a plus for high schoolers who are recently graduated, the drinking age there is only 18. Which I imagine would be a huge plus if you just graduated from high school and you're going on a senior trip. Going somewhere where you can legally drink is probably pretty nice. Wouldn't you think? Yeah. Also, I never got to go on a senior trip to Aruba. What the hell? (laughs) Among the seniors would be Natalie Holloway, who was a straight-A student that graduated with honors. She was 5'4 with blonde hair and blue eyes and was part of the Bible Club and the Dance Club. She worked with several nonprofits, volunteering her time, and had received a full eight-year ride to the University of Alabama where she planned to study to be a doctor. Her brother had actually previously taken the same trip, but her parents initially disagreed about whether or not Natalie should be allowed to go. And eventually they settled on the fact that she had earned the trip and agreed to let her go. Her mother was very worried about her safety and told her to be aware of her surroundings at all times. And Natalie promised to be careful. I would have to be one of the chaperones if I was going to send my 18-year-old daughter who just graduated from high school to Aruba. That would stress me out. I would have gone to Aruba. You wouldn't have been able to stop me. I would have gone as a chaperone. So on May 26 of 2005, Natalie and 124 classmates leave Birmingham, Alabama and arrive in Aruba where they would spend five days. There would be seven chaperones to accompany the kids, even though they're not really kids, they're technically adults. And my understanding from what I heard is the chaperones were basically there to do a daily roll call and deal with any issues that arose while trying to keep an eye on things. Like they were instructed to like not follow the kids around, like not go out to the bars with them, like nothing like that. Like they were just kind of at the hotel in case there was a problem, basically. They would check into the Holiday Inn Resort on the northern end of the island It was located right on the beach and was all-inclusive, meaning they could drink as much as they wanted. There were sun chairs, tiki bars, and fishermen huts scattering the beach around the hotel. Natalie would be assigned to a ground floor room with three of her friends, Ruth, Lee, and Catherine. And they would spend their time at the pool and on the beach and would take advantage of the free drinks, of course. Natalie wasn't much of a drinker, but she did enjoy the freedom and a Diet Coke and Bacardi 151 was her drink of choice. 
It's kind of a strange drink for somebody who's like not a drinker. I feel like. Hmm. So the kids would go to the casino located at the hotel and hit the nightclubs and the bars in town before filtering back into the hotel in the early morning hours. According to Bob Plummer, a chaperone on the trip along with his wife, about 40 to 50 kids from the group would go to Carlos and Charlie's every night. And he said that one of the chaperones would go with them, even though he wasn't supposed to. But he really wanted to make sure that the kids were safe. Yeah. And partially this was because they didn't really feel like the kids were that safe there. Apparently there was a lot of people coming onto the resort that weren't staying there. One of the chaperones said that they witnessed somebody trying to sell drugs to one of the students and actually confronted them and was threatened by them. Yikes. Which I looked up this resort and it does appear to be like a very family-friendly resort. Like, the last time I was at an all-inclusive resort on a beach, like, people would walk onto the beach, but they were not permitted to come onto the property of the resort, like, where the pool and the bar and all of that was. So, I guess I don't know how they would know if somebody didn't belong there. We did see, like, a possible drug deal going on, but it was on the beach. On May 29th, Natalie would go snorkeling to see the Antilla shipwreck. Which would be so cool to go and see. She then went bar hopping with some other students in the group, and Natalie would drink a little too much and need to be helped back to her room. Yeah. On the 30th, Natalie would wake up and have a cocktail immediately, which this is their last day there, and she was probably a little hungover, so I don't know. Like, I would, like, eat breakfast and then go get a drink and sit by the pool, so I can't really judge on this one. They would eat dinner and then go to the Excelsior Casino, which is in the hotel. It's on the second floor. And non-guests are allowed to go into the casino. So that could be one of the reasons why they have a lot of people filtering in and out that don't technically belong there. They would sit at a blackjack table where Ruth would strike up a conversation with a young man who had been around all week. He spoke English and was 6'4 with sandy blonde hair. He said that he was 19 and on holiday from Holland. The boy's name was Joran, and around 9.45, he would join the group in ordering drinks from the pool bar. He had to leave, but the group told him to meet them later at Carlos and Charlie's, which was that bar downtown that they had been going to. It was very popular for drinking and dancing. It's actually like a huge place. It's gigantic. And about 60 of the students planned to meet there for their last night, basically. Just after 10 p.m., Natalie and her roommates tried to board a bus, but the driver wouldn't let them because they had drinks. So they had to get a taxi. At midnight, Jorn would arrive with two friends, Deepak and Satish. Him and Natalie would be seen drinking and dancing together. Yep. And around 1 a.m., the bar would close down, and the DJ would close out the last dance with Sweet Home Alabama. Of course. When the song was over, Natalie was nowhere to be seen, and her friend Lee would walk to another nearby bar where some other students had gone, but they were unable to find her. She would go back to the hotel and sit vigil until 3 a.m. before going to bed, assuming that Natalie would turn up with some of the other students. But at 8 a.m., Lee and Ruth would wake up and find that Natalie's bed had not been slept in. 
and they thought that maybe she had stayed in a different room as a lot of students had been swapping rooms and kind of staying with each other throughout the week. But they were unable to find anybody that had shared a room with her. The last time anyone had seen her was outside of Carlos and Charlie's around closing time. And she had told multiple people that she was going for a drive with Yoren and his two friends, which is Deepak and Satish, who are actually brothers, by the way. They had seen her get into a silver car with the trio, and as the car drove away, Natalie had rolled down the window and yelled, Aruba. So people saw her getting into their car. She had told people where she was going, but her roommates hadn't known. Gotcha. Her bag and passport are still in her room, along with her phone, which she had left behind because it didn't get service in Aruba. So they also have no way of contacting her. Now, the group is scheduled to fly home at 3 p.m. that day. But Natalie doesn't turn up. And there are two flights heading out about an hour apart. And while loading the first bus, the chaperones were informed by a student that Natalie did not come back to the hotel that night. They would go to her room, get her stuff, hoping that she would turn up for the final bus to the airport. But she does not. So she really hasn't been missing for too long yet. 1 a.m. is about the last time Mm. that anybody saw her. So one of the chaperones would call her mother, Beth, to tell her that they couldn't find her daughter, and another chaperone would elect to stay in Aruba while the rest of the group flew home. Yeah, because they all have tickets. Like, Mm -hmm. they need to get the rest of the kids back. So I think this was probably the smartest move. Although two chaperones would have been better. Because now you're leaving one person by themselves. Yeah. But that's just me. So the chaperone would go to the police and report Natalie missing. And they said that Natalie would have to be missing for 24 hours before they could do anything. Yeah. And they told the chaperone that she was probably just off partying and would turn up. And this would become a theme, by the way, with police. So her mom, Beth, would be driving when she got the call. And she would turn around and head straight to the airport. And she would actually get pulled over for speeding. And when she told the cop about her daughter, he would actually give her a number for one of his friends in the FBI and let her go without a ticket. That's a good cop right there. Jeez. Can you imagine you're like rushing to the airport because you just found out that your daughter has been missing since 1 a.m. And you get pulled over? I thought it was going to be like, and the cop gave her a speeding ticket. (laughs) Right. If it was Hannah, she would have gotten a speeding ticket. She would have gotten pulled over for not wearing her shoes. So me and my sister both get pulled over all the time. And my poor sister always gets the ticket. One time she had to go pick up a kid or something. I don't remember, but she'd been like dyeing her hair or doing something with her hair. And she had like a towel and like something going on with her hair and got pulled over. I was just like, oh my God. And that was the week she got pulled over twice that week and got a ticket both times. And I think it was for not wearing her seatbelt. But Of course. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe that, that pisses cops off more, not having your seatbelt on than speeding. I don't know. Maybe. I usually get pulled over for speeding. Her mom and stepdad, George, would actually rent a jet and fly to Aruba that night, arriving around 10 p.m. They would go to the Holiday Inn and check in there where they were told that she had last been seen with a tourist named Yoran. So they went to the manager to see if anyone 
by that name was registered at the hotel. Something the police should probably be doing, but mm-hmm. hey. But it's fine. And he said no, but he did know who they were talking about. And he said that Joran was not a guest or even a tourist, but lived on the island and liked to gamble at the casino. So he'd been lying all week to the kids. Beth and George went to the casino and requested the video footage for the night before. And the casino let them view it. They now knew what he looked like and started trying to find out if anyone would recognize him because they don't even know if they have his real name. Yeah. Also in the video, he's sitting at the blackjack table and Natalie is sitting next to him, but she's kind of leaning away from him, closer to her friends. Like she looks a little uncomfortable in the video, I think. Well, she was obviously did get comfortable with him because she drove off in a car with him. Yep, but that was after drinking and God knows what else. I think she was drugged personally, but... Didn't she see him multiple nights, though? Yeah, but this night at the casino was the only night that anybody could remember she had actually interacted with him. But he'd been hanging out with the group throughout the week. But that probably also gave her a level of, like, comfortability with him, having Mm -hmm. seen him around. They found a teenager that did recognize his description... And they gave him $100 to give them his full name, which was Joran Vandersloot. And he was actually a 17-year-old high school student who was a local boy who lived nearby. They took his name and description to the police, but they were still sure that Natalie was off partying and maybe just ran away. But they would go with the couple to Joran's house to see if Natalie was there. I mean, at least they're doing that, but still, like, get your shit together. Yeah. He lived in a detached room off of his parents' house, and he had a 10- and 14-year-old brother who also lived in the house. His mom was a schoolteacher, and his father worked for the government and was training to be a judge, which would also become a problem. So Jorn was not home, but his dad called to him to come home. And he would show up with his 21-year-old friend, Deepak. And he had been with him the night before as well. Her parents were aggressive when he said he did not know Natalie, but he would eventually confess to flirting with her and said that they had kissed. Mm-hmm. So, so initially, this boy tries to say that he doesn't even know who Natalie is. Red flag. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that she wanted to see sharks before she left, so they went to the California Lighthouse on the northwest tip of the island, but said that they had dropped her off at the hotel around 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. So the two boys would go with them to the hotel to show them where they dropped off Natalie. And he said that Natalie was so intoxicated that she fell out of the car hitting her head and said that the hotel security guard wearing all black, carrying walkie-talkies, had helped her into the hotel. Yeah, and Beth was immediately sure that the two were lying. One, first they said they didn't know Natalie. Two, then they say they definitely dropped her off at the hotel. And three, she hit her head. So if something did happen, they're not responsible, basically. Um, and didn't the parents check the footage? 
Well, they've only seen the casino footage so far. Okay. Oh, another reason she thought they were lying, the security guards were green. And she knew that Lee had been in the lobby until 3 a.m. and had seen no sign of Natalie. Can you imagine? I can't even tell you how furious I would be. Like, I would need to kidnap him and torture him until he told me the fucking truth. Like, knowing that this little turd is lying to your face Mm -hmm. and you don't know where your daughter is, I would lose my shit. I, I would go to jail for sure. That night, they would actually stay in Natalie's hotel room with the lamp on in case she returned. But she would not. Beth would say, that's what parents do. You leave your light on and wait until your child returns home. (sighs) On May 31, Joran would go to the police station and give a statement. He said that after leaving the club, he and Natalie had started making out in the back seat and said that it was her idea to go and see the sharks, and they headed for the lighthouse. But then he would give new details, and he would say that Natalie changed her mind and wanted to go back to the hotel. He also claimed that Natalie had made some racist remarks and even said that her mom was related to Hitler. Trying to... uh, It just makes me even matter. He still stuck to the dropped her off at 2 a.m. story at the hotel. And Deepak would back up all of these claims. He also said that she fell asleep in the car and that they had to wake her up to find out what hotel she was at. Which, Joran met her at her hotel. So why would they need to wake her up to get that information? hmm <sighs> Missing persons flyers were posted by Natalie's family. And her mom would put a message on there. Please call me Hootie, which was one of her nicknames. I miss you and I love you. Mommy is here in Aruba and I really want to talk to you. Please call me on my cell. And locals thought that this made it sound like Natalie had run away. And Mm. these flyers would quickly be replaced with a different one saying kidnapped in bold red. Which is probably a good plan. Yeah. Like, I like the idea of writing a message to her, but at the same time, you don't want people to think that she just took off either. On June 1, an official search would be organized and her disappearance would be in the local paper. Now, the search would not be organized by police, as Natalie was not determined to be missing yet. You're kidding. Nope. A group of approximately 100 tours and locals are the ones searching. And there would be an official search done after this by police later on, whatever that means. But Natalie's dad, Dave, also arrives on this day. And he would visit all four police stations on the island and found that two of them were not even aware of Natalie's disappearance. And he said one even asked him how much money he had. Which is so suspicious. They also told him that she was probably out partying and would come back on her own. They're always out partying. I know. It's so fucking annoying. They're adults. They'll be fine. It's so frustrating. I can't even handle it. A $50,000 reward would be put up, and this would eventually grow to $1 million for her safe return. Tips would come in, but nothing solid came from them. One tip actually led to a false tip, 
on a blonde that was seen in a car. And when police picked her up, they said that they were sure it was Natalie and they called her parents to come and get her. But it wasn't her and didn't even really look like her. She was blonde. That was it. That's where the similarities ended. Now, I don't really understand how the legal system works in Aruba, where we're at. But on June 5, the first arrest would be made in the case. It is a former security guard of a hotel that is closed for renovation, but he would be released eight days later. Now, to me, it sounds like they just start arresting people. And apparently, you don't need cause ahead of time because they all get released. Hmm. Which is not how it works here. What about for, like, a lineup? No, they're, like, literally arrested and held for, like, eight days, 30 days, 60 days, and then released because there's no evidence. I like it. I like it. Of course Maddie likes it. I think if you're suspected of a serious crime, you know, bail should not be optional. Uh, I don't know about that. But, like, you shouldn't be able to be arrested. Like, they shouldn't be able to come pick you up because you happen to drive a silver car, which is what Natalie got into. Right? Like, there has to be something that says you are just don't possibly guilty. Well, maybe they did have something. They didn't. Not on this guy. (laughs) How do they know? How do you know they had absolutely nothing? Well, he's released eight days later, so obviously they didn't have enough for anything. Well, maybe they had something, and then they oh kept God. him for eight days, and then was like, shit, you're cleared. Well, hold on. There's more coming. Police finally view the security camera and find that Deepak's car, his silver car, never enters the camera frame outside of the hotel, and there is no video of Natalie entering the hotel at any time. Yeah, because she didn't. They killed her. It is June 9th when Vandersloot and the two brothers are taken into custody. And it sounds like from what I read that this was because of a lot of pressure from the family. And it is now that the story of the two brothers changes. They claim that they dropped off Natalie and Vandersloot at a beach near the Holiday Inn. Because obviously they're confronted with the, hey, your car's not on video. You never drove to the hotel. We know it's a lie. Why does everyone think that just changing their story is going to... I don't know. So they're now they're just changing their story to try to make it fit. So now they're saying they dropped off Natalie and Vandersloot at a nearby beach, right? Vandersloot claimed that he left her there at the beach to walk home. Yeah. He left her at the beach. He also is unable to provide his shoes from that night because he claims that he lost them on the beach. Suspicious. Very suspicious. At this point, the missing persons posters are edited to read Kidnapped by Joran Vandersloot. (laughs) And... At this point, the family starts receiving threatening calls, and they changed it to just missing. (laughs) My God. But at one point, they actually put his name on the flyer. And I don't know if it was the family that did it or somebody else, but, like, somebody does that. Okay, so according to Urin and Deepak's phones, they communicated throughout the day that Natalie went missing. They also met up the following day after speaking on the phone. At 6, 11, and 11.30. And they met around midnight. 
They were described as agitated, and they were still together when Euron received the call that Natalie's family was there. So the theory is, is that the pair had met up to get their stories straight and or dispose of evidence. Um, they were brought in for questioning again. Satis chooses to stay silent. Deepak stuck to the same story of dropping Natalie off at the beach. Euron gave new details. So he said that Natalie asked him if the brothers were his slaves. So adding more racist stuff? Yeah. Are they? They're not exactly white. Well, the brothers do later admit that Natalie never said anything racist. Oh, so for shit. some reason, he's making it up. Okay, why is he making why. it up? I don't know. I mean, like, because I, I, you know, he's trying obviously to, want to doubt that Natalie is going to be racist I know. or say racist I, things. I think he's trying to justify abandoning her on the beach is what he's leading towards. Oh, but I'm not sure. Okay. Next, Euron claimed that the brothers dropped him off at home at 1.45 and that they left with Natalie smidge yeah and that before they left he had exchanged email addresses with natalie and gave her one final kiss oh isn't he like prince charming he said that he received a call from deepak at 3 a.m stating that they had dropped off natalie and the following night when her family showed up deepak had asked him to lie about the whole story and when the brothers found out that euron had pointed the finger at them deepak revised his statement saying that around 145 he left Euron and Natalie at the beach near the hotel and that Euron called him around 245 saying that he was on his way home and he said that Natalie had fallen asleep on the beach and he decided to leave her there and he said that he had to walk home barefoot since he had lost his shoes on the beach. Euron sent Deepak a text after they got off the phone saying that he would go online to chat as soon as he got home. So we know that they talked online where it couldn't be tracked as well. Okay. The pair agreed to meet up the following evening. So we know that. He also said that Natalie was not very intoxicated and that he never heard her make any racist comments. Satish would also verify Deepak's story. So he's been silent up until now. But when Euron starts pointing the finger at them, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is what actually happened. And his story matches Deepak's story. That they dropped them off at the beach. Euron's neighbor had said that he told him that he had picked up an American girl and dropped her off at her hotel. Then later told him the story about leaving Natalie on the beach sleeping. So his story changed even to other people. So he told the initial lie and then started to change it to other people as well. He also told police that he was a size 14, but he was actually a size 10. So guessing at this point that his shoes are covered in blood and that he's worried that there may be shoe prints somewhere or bloody shoes might be linked back to him. Euron did have a history of treating women badly and he did have a girlfriend at this time. Okay. But she was mad about this whole thing. Oh my gosh. Euron then changes his story again and said that he had been dropped off at the beach with Natalie. So now he's backing up the brother's side of the story. And that he planned to have sex with her on the way back to the hotel. And that he got sand in his shoes and had taken them off. He said that they were laying on the beach making out. And when Natalie found out that he didn't have a condom, she refused to have sex with him. At 3 a.m., he said it was time to go home. But she wanted to stay at the beach and soon fell asleep. 
and he said that he then called Deepak for a ride. And he believed that after Deepak dropped him off at home, he must have gone back to rape and kill Natalie. I'm really not a big fan of this guy right now. Phone records do confirm that at 2.45 a.m., Yoran made an eight-minute phone call to Deepak. And after the call to Deepak, he sent a text message to Yoran saying, I'll wait up till you get home, and then I will go to sleep. Give me a missed call when you arrive. So looking at the phone records, hmm, Yoran then says, Hey, thanks, mate. Trust all is well. I am home. And Yoran also logged into the online chat room around the same time. This seemed to support Deepak's version of the story and not Yoran's, in which he said that Deepak had picked him up. So why would he be waiting for a text message from Yoran that he's home safe if he dropped him off home safe? When questioned about this detail, Yoran's story then changes again, saying that it was actually Satis that had picked him up from the beach. I literally can't. Euron, you are fucking guilty. I just know it. Police also at one point do arrest Euron's father in relation to Natalie's disappearance. But he is also released. My guess is that police think that he knows more than he's saying. Mm -hmm. Which, you know. On July 4, a judge orders the release of the brothers, guessing lack of evidence. But he rules that Bandersloot can be held for another 60 days, but no reason for why is given. Which, as you can understand, Natalie's family was very hostile about this choice to release the brothers and were very disappointed about the progress in their daughter's case. No kidding. Yeah. So on July 17th, hair strands are found, and they are found on a piece of duct tape on Aruba's northeast coast by park rangers. And they would be sent to FBI's crime lab in Quantico. But on July 28th, they would be determined to be a negative match for Natalie. So basically, there's a piece of fucking duct tape sitting on the beach. It's a fisherman's With blonde hair in it. Fisherman's arm hair. No. It's another dead fucking person, I'm telling you right now. On July 18, a barrel would be found in the ocean by divers near the Marriott Hotel. And when they pulled it up, they found that it was full of concrete. Dead body. I would have thought a dead body, too. Oh. It did not contain a body. No. Just concrete. So on July 26th, the brothers are arrested again. <sighs> Same date, July 26th, a pond near the Marriott was drained after police received a tip from a gardener claiming that he saw Vandersloot and the Calpote brothers digging there. Digging there. By the way, the Calpote, that's... Satis and Deepak. We've been calling them by their first names, but it's Calpo Brothers. Um, they would abandon this effort on the 30th. So didn't find anything, I would guess. The Calpo Brothers are rearrested, but along with Vanderstyle, so you're on. All three are released on September 3rd, and the police would say the investigation continues. The case of Natalie Holloway has not concluded with these releases. I disagree. In October, Natalie's mom would get a voicemail saying, help me, mom. But it was ruled to not be Natalie's voice. What is wrong with people? Seriously. In February of 2006, a Dutch television station aired a hidden camera confession 
that Vandersloot had made to an Aruban businessman named Patrick Vanderelm, in which he claimed Natalie died of a drug overdose on the beach and that he and a friend had dumped her body at sea. He said, I always lied to the police. I never told the truth. And he said this while grinning, too, by the way. He spoke all this in Dutch, by the way. Yeah. Also, when I was younger, I never told everything. The police just never knew what they had to ask me. He just sounds like such a douchebag. He would later recant this confession. Mm Mm-hmm. He would also confess multiple times to multiple people with the detail slightly changing. So he's also an attention whore. Good. On March 3rd, 2006, Vandersloot gives an interview with Fox 13, which ends up being a three-night event where he recounts time with Natalie. He said that he drank with her at the bar, left her on the beach, talks about the shoe issue. I want to play you a little clip from this interview, and basically... I just don't even understand. You met a guy in February of three years ago who said he was interested in something. What was he interested in? He was interested in me bringing him a blonde girl. So uh, what happened the day you met Natalie? Well, the day I met met Natalie, I I remembered what he said. And uh, as I was leaving the casino to, to leave, I went by the Radisson Casino and he was there. I spoke with him. And he's like, yeah, you know, so then he's when he's asked me for, like, uh, okay, all I want is to, to, you know, if you bring me a blonde girl, let me know. Give me a call on, on this number right here. Gave me a phone number. And then he said um, to meet him at the, at the beach by the, by the Marriott if I ever got a girl and that he would give me $10,000. Okay, so basically the interview is him saying he's talking about sex trafficking, like Natalie, like he sex trafficked her. It's the weirdest thing. Like, one... I know it's a lot. Can't we just kill him? Just kill these people. Just fucking kill these people. He does not deserve to be alive. I know. Well, if he's going to brag about all this shit, he should be in jail regardless. He should be dead. Yeah. Here's one thing that I wonder. One, I'd like to see the unedited version of that video. Because to me, it sounds too asinine for him to be saying that the way that he's saying it after her questions without him getting arrested. For this crime. You know what I mean? Like, I'm guessing there's more to that video, but I don't know what. But either way, he's implying that he's been given the opportunity to bring blonde girls. But nowhere does he say he brought Natalie to this guy. It's more implied. But I'm wondering if that's implied because he's trying to imply it. It sounds like he's saying. Or if it's implied because of how they edited it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. So fucking weird. He just looks like a creeper too. He does. On November 21 of 2007, Van der and the Culpo brothers are arrested again and are released on December 7. I hope none of them have good jobs. Euron would spend his time traveling and when he got low on money, he would do an interview again. And probably confess again as well. Get this. On March 29 of 2010, Vandersloot reaches out to Natalie's mother. Her mother. And he offers to reveal the location of Natalie's body for $25,000 
upfront and another $225,000 after. After being given $10,000, he says that his father buried her in the foundation of a house. And he would later claim that this was a lie. And also the land that he claimed this happened on had no such house at the time of Natalie's disappearance. So obviously it's a fucking lie. He confesses that he just wanted to get back at Natalie's family for making his life hell. By making yourself look like a guilty piece of shit. Four days later, he would flee the country just as police were looking to arrest him for extortion. Because what he did is illegal if you didn't know. He left a note for his mom saying that he had been invited to play in a poker tournament in Peru. I'm going to warn you right now, Madison. This is going to make you mad. On May 30 of 2010, Stephanie Flores Ramirez would go missing in Lima, Peru. Her father had recently become concerned that his daughter might be developing a gambling habit and enjoyed spending a lot of time at casinos. Who else do we know that spends time at casinos? You're on. She is 21, a good student. She's in college. And her Jeep would be found abandoned in a bad neighborhood. When looking at her phone record, she had called her friend, Corolla, and when police contacted her, she confirmed that they had spent the day and evening together. They had gone to lunch and went to the carnival and then played some video games before heading out to the bar with another friend. She would drop both women off around 2 a.m. and sent Corolla a text message an hour later saying that she had made it home safely. She also told police that Stephanie was in possession of a large sum of money that she had won while gambling. When police checked the video surveillance at the casino, they discovered that she had not actually gone home that morning, but instead had gone to the casino and straight to a poker table. She was seen with a tall Caucasian man, and parking lot camera showed the pair driving off in Stephanie's Jeep. Hotel staff said that the man had won a raffle and entered his passport number on the ticket with his name. And it was Joran Vandersloot. They initially thought that both young people had gone missing until they Googled him. And guess what? It's also the five-year anniversary of Natalie going missing. That Stephanie goes missing. What the fuck? While getting ready to release his picture, they receive a call from the Lima Hotel saying that the occupant of 309 hadn't been seen in days and his bill was past due. The clerk had decided to go into the room, which was in disarray, and Stephanie Flores was dead on the floor with her wallet empty of its cash and cards. She was covered in bruises and her neck had been broken. There was blood everywhere. Flores and Vandersloot were captured on CCTV footage entering his hotel room on May 30, and this is the last sighting of her. Vandersloot would be seen leaving the room four hours later alone, and when they checked Vandersloot's passport, it showed that he had entered Chile. On Thursday, June 3, 2010, he would be seen getting into a taxi and police would finally be able to track him down. He told police that two armed men had broken into his hotel room, dressed as police, and tried to rob him, and he said that he fled, leaving her behind. Okay. 
his story would, of course, change multiple times. The second story would be that he had suffocated her in self-defense. Sure. Definitely not. Definitely murdering women. Seriously. He would be arrested on June 3 in Chile, and Flores' father, Ricardo Flores, told ABC that Vandersloot's laptop contained valuable information that may lead to more of Joran's victims and said that I think he killed many others. In June, he would be indicted for wire fraud, extortion, on his little scam against Natalie's parents. Too bad this didn't happen before he decided to murder another person. So, at the very least, he's in jail. We're done with him for right now. He's in jail. Okay. Nothing new would occur on the case until... Friday, November 12 of 2010, when a couple walking the beach near the Phoenix Hotel about a mile from the Holiday Inn would find a jawbone with a tooth still attached. It was a wisdom tooth, though, and Natalie had had hers removed, so they knew it wasn't Natalie's. But guess what? They have no idea who this jawbone belongs to and were unable to identify it. Another missing person. And only a mile away from where Natalie was last seen. Hmm. In January of 2012, Vandersloot does plead guilty to the murder of Flores. He would say in court, I wanted from the first moment to confess. Sincerely, I am truly sorry for this act. I feel very bad. Do you? And he actually claimed extreme psychological trauma from the Holloway saga is part of why this happened. And he also said, I did not want to do it. The girl intruded in my private life and she had no right. I confronted her. She was frightened. We argued and she wanted to get away. I grabbed her by the neck and I hit her. So basically what it sounded like is that she like Googled him or something or asked him about his past or something. And he flew off the handle is what he's saying. But police actually believe that he killed her to rob her of her casino winnings, which I totally believe. 100%. In January of 2012, Natalie would officially be declared dead. It was her dad that petitioned for this and her mom didn't initially want to support it, but would come around. Yeah, I think her mom just didn't want to admit that she had died. But her dad really wanted to... So, this is so heartbreaking. Natalie had... um, college funds and money that he wanted to be able to use for her younger siblings and he couldn't do that without her being declared dead and probably as a measure of closure as well yeah in january of 2012 vandersloot is sentenced 28 years in prison and ordered to pay seventy-five thousand dollars to the victim's families which he probably doesn't even have at this point no And he will be extradited to answer for his extortion charges only after he is done serving his current sentence. Uh, Well, and think about it. He's young. 28 years. He'll be be in his 50s. I hope they do actually extradite him. In 2014, he would actually get married and have a child while in jail. Why is that allowed? Since we don't have a bunker talk on this one. One thing that I wanted to address is Vandersloot's dad. I do kind of think that he might have been involved after the fact. 
And I don't know about Deepak and Satis if they're actually involved or not, or if they were just trying to cover up for him. That one I can't quite figure out. But I will say that the three of them do call themselves the Pimpology Crew online, which seriously. Either way, if his father was involved, he dies in 2010. So nothing can really be done about that. I still would like to know the brother's involvement because I feel like they need to answer for something, even if it was just for a cover-up. I'm not really sure. But yeah, I, for one, if I was Natalie's family, I might be willing to make some sort of deal for him to reveal where she's at. But you know what her mom actually said in an interview I saw? It was like so heartbreaking. She said something along the lines of, I would rather die not knowing than him get a deal. Which, Yeah, I mean, he man, probably buried her out at sea, like he said. That's, I would there's just, probably some truth to what he said. He yeah. probably can't get the body back because he probably put the body in the ocean. He either buried it or he put it in the ocean, right? Like there's really no other possibilities. He didn't have time. Because remember, she, what was the time? It was, I put it at the very bottom right here. She was last seen at 1. She was last he seen. He called at, his friends at She was three. last seen at one fifteen, And at 3.15, he has messaged his friend that he made it home. That's only two hours. And he had to get home from the beach at some point during that time. Yeah. So there's really not a lot of time for anything. And that 1 a.m. includes when she drove off in the car with them, not when she was left with Euron alone. Right. So even if you consider that, that's even less time for something to happen. I don't know. Also, he could have stashed her body in like a hut or something on the beach. And then him and Deepak could have gone back for it the next day or he could have done something with it the next day. So we're also assuming that all of this could have happened in that short time frame, but it could have continued mm -hmm. on past that as well. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? <sighs> but that is the story of Natalie Holloway. But we really did want to thank you guys for supporting us. You guys are amazing. We hope everybody's having the best holiday ever. You should be getting your Christmas cards in the mail. We're so excited for you guys to get them. Um, Feel free to send us cards back. You have our address now. So, yeah, we would love to hear from you guys. And thank you so much for supporting us. You guys are amazing. And we hope you have a great holiday season. Bye. Update. Joran Vandersloot has confessed to the murder of Natalie Holloway. He confessed to crushing her head with a cinder block and dragging her to the ocean when she refused his sexual advances on the beach that night. Vandersloot was led into court wearing an orange jumpsuit with his hair buzzed short. He's in court on this day because of the extortion charges that had been filed against him in 2010 from him trying to extort money from Natalie's mom. Peruvian officials refused to release him to American custody until May of this year, which originally we thought he would not come up on charges for this extortion until he was released for the second murder. So, kind of a surprise. Now, after Vandersloot apologizes to Natalie's family in court, 
don't believe you're sorry for a second. The judge says, you have brutally murdered in separate incidents, years apart, two young women who refused your sexual advances. Now, here's the real kicker. Part of his plea deal, because he makes a plea deal, is that they cannot use his confession against him. Outlined in the plea deal, he will serve his U.S. sentence in Peruvian custody. He will serve remainder of sentence in U.S. if he is released from Peruvian custody earlier than anticipated. He's ordered to pay $25,100 in restitution immediately, which I'm sure he doesn't have. He's ordered to pay two hundred dollars special assessment. Not sure what that is. Must not re-enter the U.S. without permission of Homeland Security. Hopefully that never happens. Maybe forever refused admission to the U.S. Must waive his rights to appeal both his convictions and sentences. So his expected release date right now is June 9 of 2043. His release from jail in Peru should have been in 2038 because he was originally given a 28-year sentence, but he had more time added for a drug smuggling scandal. So I have a couple issues with this plea deal, and maybe you guys can weigh in on whether or not you have the same issues, because if I was Natalie's family, this plea deal, this sentence would not give me closure and it would not make me feel better. One, he makes a plea deal for this confession, right? For these extortion charges. They can't use it against him. So what does he have to lose by confessing to killing Natalie? He's not giving up her body. There's not really any closure except for him 100% saying, yes, I murdered her. However, There's no consequence to him saying that. So why wouldn't he say that if it was part of his plea deal? Anyway, this is the update on the Natalie Holloway case. It's crazy. I went back and listened to our original, um, (laughs) our original account of this case. And we obviously thought that Vandersloot was guilty from the beginning. We obviously thought that he either buried her or sent her into the ocean, which is what he said he did. One thing at the end of our episode that absolutely broke my heart is (laughs) saying that his mother said she would rather die not knowing than him get a plea deal for killing her daughter. So there you have it. Let us know what you think. We'll probably post a poll. We did it on Patreon as well. Would this give you closure if this was your loved one? Let us know. All right. Thanks for tuning in, you guys. If you want more Patreon-exclusive episodes, come and support us on Patreon. We have a bunch over there um, that will take you a while to catch up on. We also have our Bunker Talks, which is our bias opinion on every episode that we post and all of our other bonus material. So come and check us out there. All right. Thanks, you guys. Bye. One, two, three.